Howdy, Pastor Mark Driscoll here. The latest book for my wife, Grace and I, Win Your War, is available for pre-sale. It releases at the end of September. We're gonna look at how God creates Satan counterfeits and how there is a spiritual attack for your relationship with God, yourself, others, and the church. Super biblical, super practical. Pre-order today, Win Your War. Alrighty, we're continuing our study of Proverbs and it's a really practical book about how to do certain things. And there are many things that we want to do, but we just don't know how to do them. Proverbs enters in, gives us wisdom, practical daily advice on how to walk in wisdom and how to do the things that God wants you to do and that you want to do. So uh, today we're gonna look at this question, how do you win at work? And I was thinking about it. Uh, let's say you work 40 to 50 hours a week. That's most people, unless you're a mother of a small child, then you work 13,000 hours a week. But for the rest of us, you work 40 or 50 hours a week. Let's say about 50 weeks a year, you get a little vacation time. Let's say you work from your mid twenties to your mid sixties, about 40 years. The average person, if you're just working a normal job, is gonna work 2,000 to 2,500 hours this year, and in your lifetime, 80,000 to 100,000 hours of your life is going to be spent at work. That being said, since we're here in church and we're Bible-believing church, how does work relate to God? How, how does our relationship with God continue where we spend so much of our time and energy at work? And that's the issue that we're going to talk about today. Before we get into some particulars in Proverbs, I want to establish sort of a biblical concept of work. And this can include your job, volunteering at a nonprofit, serving at the church, parenting your children, whatever the case might be. It's whatever work you have to do. Um, five ways to worship at work. Here's a biblical overview of work and a bit of an establishing of some theological principles. Number one, since God works, work is godly. To be godly is to follow God's example. As you read Genesis, the first book of the Bible, it tells us that everything is the result of God's work. God made the heavens and the earth. God made us in his image and likeness. It says over and over and over that God did this and God did that and God said this and God said that because God works, work is godly. It's a godly thing to work. And so what we see even in Genesis is that it says six days God's work and then on the seventh day, God rested. That's why we have a seven day week. And according to the Bible, we should have one day off a week. Instead, we get two. Some of you may wonder why, thank you for asking. It's because the Jewish people took Saturday as their Sabbath. Christians with the resurrection of Jesus shifted our day of rest to Sunday. When America was founded, there was a debate. Do we take Saturday or Sunday? And the Americans said, yes. So we took, we took a two day weekend and a five day work week. That's how we got to it. But God works six days and takes a day off. Uh, number two, work is now cursed. It says that in Genesis, our first father, Adam, God made him, put him in the garden to work it. He had a job to do. And then you turn the page over to Genesis three, sin enters the world and work becomes toil. 
And it says that now there are thorns and thistles. What that means is whatever you're trying to cultivate, whatever you're trying to grow, there's always gonna be weeds to pull and there's always gonna be obstacles to overcome. So here's what that means. You'll never get your work done. How many of you still haven't learned this? How many of you, how many of you, you, you cleaned out your inbox, right? You're like, I'm all caught up on email. And then one Yahoo sends a group email out that everyone auto replies to and shuts down your internet, right? I mean, it just always works that way. Mom, what happens when you finally get all of the dishes clean? What happens? Your kids are all starving and they're needing to make a mess in your kitchen. What happens, what happens mom, when you finish all the laundry, all the kids are caught up, here's what's gonna happen. Some cosmic connection, you're gonna shut the final drawer and then your kid's gonna get diarrhea. It's, an inver- it's inevitable, right? That, you're just like, oh, I was done with laundry. As soon as I shut the door, it triggered some release valve in the child. You'll never get your work done, amen? How many of you have to-do lists? Put this on the top, stop having a list. You're never gonna get to all of that. Or at least allow yourself to leave some things on the list, right? How many of you, you're working yourself to death, trying to get the work done. You're like, as soon as I overcome the curse, then I'll rest. You're gonna die, stand before Jesus and apologize if that's your way of doing life. You're never going to get all your work done. So three, we should work from our rest. Again, back in Genesis, as God denotes a day, he does it in this way. There was evening and morning the first day, evening and morning the second day. This is how God constitutes time. It starts at nighttime. That's when they begin their day. We tend to think that our day begins in the morning with our work. It should begin in the evening with our rest. Part of the problem in the West is we work ourselves to an absolutely overextended state, usually including sickness because we've taxed the human body. And then as we're collapsing, we take a day off or a vacation. And then we grab our laptop and our phone to go on vacation, which means it's no longer a vacation. The storyline of the Bible is that if a day began at night, your first priority was rest and Sabbath. Because in a day when there's no electricity, when the sun went down, you would go home because your workday was done and you were starting a new day. God wants you to rest as a first priority, be healthy, and then do good hard work, and then back into your rest cycle but it's not work, 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 work. And if there's any time left, rest, it's rest so that you can do your work well. And when you're not working, it's an act of faith that God is holding the universe together even while you're taking a nap. It takes faith to take a day off. And so since work is God, since God works, work is godly, work is now cursed, we should work from our rest. And your work is part of your worship. We're not just worshiping here today. When you go to work tomorrow, you'll be worshiping God there as well, both equally pleasing in his sight. Let me give you a case study of the perfect worker. His name is Jesus Christ. Jesus spent the first 90% of his life, the first roughly 30 years doing what? Working a job. What kind of job? 
carpenter. His dad's a carpenter. So when he's a kid, he's got his chores. That's his work. As he's a young man to grown man, then he goes to work in the family business with his dad. He's a carpenter. He's not casting out demons, walking on water, healing people, raising the dead. He is making tables. And how many of you would think, gosh, God came to earth and made a table. Didn't he have anything more important to do? How many of you, you would love it if God was your mechanic. You'd like, I could use a mechanic that's perfect. That'd be amazing. How many of you would like a plumber that can do a good job? The point is this, that we don't just need preachers, we need plumbers. We don't need just missionaries. We also need people in the medical field. And it's serving the whole person. If it's under the Lord, it's all good, godly and glorious work. So what Jesus did during the first 90% of his life was just as honoring and glorifying to God as the job change that he had around the age of 30, going from a carpenter to a minister. Now he's preaching and teaching and casting out demons and healing people and dealing with religious knuckleheads, which is all part of ministry. And ultimately on both accounts, Jesus was doing the work that he was supposed to do. It's not like this was bad, this was good. It was all good. Jesus says, I know the work that the Father has given me and those are the things that I'm doing. So when he's 25, he's like, it is the will of God today that I do good carpentry work. And then at the age of 33-ish, roughly, it is the will of God that I die today. Both are acts of worship, all of life, can be an act of worship. And so number five then, work is not sacred and secular. Some Christians have what I'll call an ideology of dualism, that there are things that are good jobs for the Lord and then there's secular jobs. And some people even say this like, oh, I wish I was called into ministry. Well, if you're belonging to Jesus, everything you do is part of your ministry. And so jobs are not sacred and secular. Work is not sacred and secular, but workers are sacred and secular. Uh, I'll give you an example. I was looking in the scriptures. There is a, a large number of viable vocations that God honors and his people hold. They include in the Bible, carpentry, tent making, fishing, medicine, teaching, farming, politics, metalwork, music, investing, uh, finances, labor, construction, law and legal matters, consulting, cooking, architecture, athletics, entertainment, banking, military service, real estate dealings, clothing manufacturing, mothering, fathering, sales, it's all in the Bible. And you can love God and serve God and your work can be worship. This is a distinctly Christian view of work. Martin Luther, the great Protestant reformer says it this way, quote, your work is a very sacred matter. Now just think of that. Your work is a very sacred matter. What you're doing matters. He goes on to say, God delights in it. And through it, he wants to bestow his blessing on you. The praise of work should be uh, inscribed on all tools on the forehead and faces that sweat from toiling. You won't get this understanding of work apart from the Bible. And as a result, as we understand the Bible, then this verse from Colossians 3 makes perfect sense. Colossians 3, 23 and 24. Whatever you do, right? 
This is parenting your kids. This is volunteering at the church. This is going to work. This is doing good in your studies at university. Whatever your thing is, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart. It's wholehearted. As working for the Lord, not for men, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as as a reward, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. So the uniquely Christian perspective of work is above my boss is my boss's boss, the capital B boss, whose name is Jesus Christ or God. And as a result, even if I have a hard time being motivated to serve my boss, I can serve my boss's boss. And so for the Christian, we're saying whatever we're doing, we're ultimately doing it out of love for devotion to and following in the example of Jesus Christ. So think of it in this way. If Jesus was your boss, would you show up late? Probably not. You're like, I was reading about judgment day. I'll show up early. I don't know how this is gonna play out. How many of you, if Jesus was your boss, you would not spend your whole day at work watching cat videos on YouTube and playing Fortnite? You probably, you're like, no, I wouldn't do that. Well, then don't. Well, then don't. Would you steal from Jesus if he was your employer? Hopefully not. So for the Christian, ultimately our alliance, our allegiance is to Jesus. And that is a blessing and a benefit to our employer because it means we're gonna work hard if we're working in integrity according to the Lord. We're not gonna steal, we're gonna add value, we're gonna show up and we're not gonna waste company time. This is unto the Lord Jesus because the boss can't always see you, but the boss's boss always does. And the boss can pay you, but Jesus has an inheritance for you that's eternal and extravagant. And so we are storing up treasures in heaven by laboring earnestly on the earth. All of that cumulatively is sort of the biblical perspective of work. Now we'll jump into the book of Proverbs. How do you win at work? You're gonna go to work. Work is worship. How do you win while you're worshiping at work? And just for full disclosure, I'm gonna give you three principles and they come from a guy named Patrick Lencioni. He writes a lot on leadership. And uh, it's not an overtly you know, Christian book, um, but he comes to the same conclusions as the book of Proverbs. Because if you look at foolishness and wisdom, you end up coming to the Bible's conclusions. And so I wanna take his categories and then look at them through the lens of Proverbs. But what he's saying is that ultimately, uh, to win at work requires a great team. Okay? And here's the basic principle, a team, always beats a superstar. So we'll just field test my idea. I ask you a question. Who is the greatest basketball player in the history of the world? Michael Jordan. Jordan. First service, a guy said LeBron James. I was like, watch your mouth, we're in church. (laughs) It's Michael Jordan. We We know that, we know that. It's Michael Jordan. Now, Michael Jordan in his prime versus a mediocre high school team, who wins? the mediocre high school team, because a team beats the superstar. So you can have a superstar without a team. They're not going to do well. You can have a team without a superstar that does well, or you can have a team with a superstar and that's the best case scenario. How do you build, how do you contribute to, how do you participate 
in a good team. First, it's looking to God. And the doctrine of the Trinity, there is one God, three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. That's the name of our church. What that understanding of God means is that God is a team and all the work that God does, God does as a team. So whatever God is doing, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, they're all invested, they're all involved, they're working together. We see them together working in creation. We see them together at the resurrection and the work of redemption. God works as a team. Not only that, God works through human teams and God works through angelic teams. God is all about getting work done through team building because he's relational. He's a father and ultimately he's looking to make a family. So what makes a great team player humble, relationally smart and hungry? We'll look at those in succession through Proverbs. Number one, a humble team player, a humble team player. Proverbs 3, 7, be not wise in your own eyes. That's arrogance or haughtiness or pride. It's judging yourself by yourself, which the Bible says is unwise. Don't be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. What he's talking about there is everything begins with you honoring God's authority over your life. If you don't honor God's authority over your life, all of your life will be different and none of your life will be better. The fear of the Lord is the honoring of God first. And what this means is you're not independent, you're, you're dependent that ultimately you're not in authority, you're under his authority. And those who do not understand this have an impossible time being a healthy contributing Bible team member. Once you bring yourself under the Lordship of Christ, once you bring yourself under the fear of the Lord and the authority of God over your life, it allows you to do whatever God asks you to do because you're accepting his will for your life, which is what humility makes possible. This means that if you are humble, and let me just say this, none of us is humble, amen? Nobody could say, I'm so humble. I'm so humble. I've kept a record of all my humble deeds that I'm very proud of. Let me share them with you. None of us can say that we've arrived at humility. Humility is a direction not a destination, right? That ultimately it's a place to which we are venturing, but it's never a place at which we find ourselves arriving. We, we all have pride and we need to seek humility. As we seek humility, it allows us to be a follower and a leader, to be a follower of God's authority and the authority that God has placed over us. Children honoring their mother and father, right? Honoring employer, honoring government. The Bible talks about these things. And when God calls you and it's his will for you, not only to be a follower, but to be a leader, to, to, to make decisions, to take responsibility for others. And sometimes people think of humility and they think, well, if you're humble, you won't lead. Actually, some people don't lead because they're proud. They're worried what other people will think of them. They're not considering what God has asked of them. And if God says, I need you to lead your family, I need you to lead that ministry, I need you to lead uh, that business. And you say, no, I'm not going to because it will seem like I'm proud and I worry about what other people think of me, that's pride. Humility says, 
If I need to follow, I'll follow. If I need to lead, I lead. I am willing to be in the position that God has for me because humility is literally under God's authority, knowing your place, whatever place he would assign you. Once this issue is resolved, then the rest of the issues start to resolve themselves. How about this one? Proverbs 3.34, toward the scorners he is scornful, but to the humble he gives favor. This is the law of reaping and sowing. If you're gonna scorn, you're gonna be scorned. But if you are humble, God gives favor or grace. Humility causes us to recognize that we have God-sized problems. We need help. Now, people who don't know God, what kind of help do they offer? Self-help. I would submit to you, I am the self-problem, not the self-help. How many of you, right? You're like, yeah, the, the only consistent painful variable in my life is me. I feel like maybe I'm the problem, not the solution. If you ventured in that direction, you're getting really close to the truth, amen? And what it means is we need help. I need help, you need help, we need help. You're like, I, I never been married, I never raised kids, I never led an organization, I never followed a leader. I, this is all, God, I need help. And he's like, I know, and that's, that's why I send the Holy Spirit as the helper, because you need help. The humble know they need help, so they're willing to receive help from God and others. That's what humility allows. Proverbs 27, 18, he who tends a fig tree, wherever you work, that's your fig tree. Wherever you work, that's your fig tree. That's where he gets your figs. Uh, he will eat its fruit, and he who looks after his master will be honored. Look after the company, and look after the leadership or the ownership. We don't do this in America, do we? We are all about entitlement, rebellion, and dishonor. And we wonder why we're in debt and everybody's angry. It's because we're not beginning with wisdom and the fear of the Lord. We're beginning with foolishness and rebellion against all authority, beginning with God's authority. And here's the basic biblical principle. Honor goes up, blessing comes down, right? Let me just ask parents. The Bible says for the children to, to honor their mother and father, that's honor goes up. And then what? Blessing comes down. The Bible says, children, honor your father and mother that it may go well with you and that you might have a long and enjoyable life. I'm paraphrasing one of the 10 commandments. Honor goes up, blessing comes down. If you honor those who are in leadership over you, blessing will come down to you. If you honor God's authority over you, he will send blessing down on you. And this doesn't mean that you can't disagree or make changes. It just means that you do so in a way that is honorable because the ends don't justify the means, both matter in the sight of God. How are you doing at honoring? If you're struggling with honoring, it's because there is pride in your heart and you're struggling to pursue humility. Uh, next slide, please. Proverbs uh, 11, 16 and 17, and we're looking at a humble team player. And just so you know, some of these will be positive examples, some of these will be negative examples. But on the other side, there's always something to learn. Think of it this way. Sometimes we see a picture and sometimes we see a silhouette. 
Some of these scriptures are gonna be pictures of what to do, and some of these are gonna be silhouettes of what not to do, but they both instruct us. And we're looking at the other side. He says, ruthless men gain only wealth, a kind man benefits himself, but a cruel man brings trouble on himself. There are people in the business world, sometimes in the ministry world as well, they are ruthless and cruel, but they know how to make money. They're ruthless and cruel, but they know how to make money. A humble person considers not just the profit, but the people. Now a business needs to be profitable, but God values above all else people. That's why Jesus died for people. So if you're going to be a Christian leader, you need to consider profit and also people, because here's the truth. We either love money and use people or we use money to love people. What these people do, they use, they use people to get money. They don't use money to bless people. And sometimes this is in the name of business, but it's ruthlessness and it's cruelty. How about this one? Proverbs 15, 22. It's, you guys all seem convicted. Is this, am I, you know, I was expecting like, yay, Pastor Mark doing such a good job. I don't know if you know, I'm working today. Thanks for coming. Um, Proverbs 15, 22. Um, <laughs> all right, three of you appreciate it. That's good. Bring your, bring your friends. Okay, Proverbs 15, 22. Plans fail for lack of? A humble person is like, I don't know it all and I got a lot to learn. How many of you, you're like, I, I, I teach, I don't learn. I'm, I'm the professor, not the student. Well, then you're gonna find yourself in real trouble. We call these the teen years, by the way. Right? Like, <laughs> I, I must've forgot stuff in my 20s because I knew it all in my teen years. Plans fail for lack of counsel, but with many advisors or lots of wise counsel, they succeed. What he's talking about here is that humble people see life as a classroom and class is always in session. They're like, okay, let me ask you this. Let me learn from that. You pay my dumb tax. Help me here. I'm trying to figure out how to do this and I don't know everything, so I need help. Humility. There's a debate as to who said this, but I think one of my favorite quotes on humility is this. Humility is not thinking less of yourself Humility is thinking of yourself less. See, we're always thinking about ourselves. Humility says, what about God and other people? What do they need? What do they think? What do they want? How do they feel? Humility doesn't cause you to think less of yourself, but just to think of yourself less, to open up opportunity to think about God and others. And let me just say that our culture is all about pride, right? Where have, have you ever seen the humility march? <laughs> you ever seen the, I've never seen the humility march. Hey, we're here to learn and confess that we're the problem. I've never seen that protest. <laughs> I've never seen that. And, and it's because in our world, what is valued is pride. And in the kingdom of God, what is valued is humility. How do we know this? Look at the Lord Jesus. 
He was ruling and reigning from a throne over a kingdom in heaven surrounded by angels. And he came down to be born to a teenage mother in a rural town. And his first bassinet was a feeding trough. And his first job was carpentry with his dad. That's humility. Our God is humble. And our God values humility or those who seek to pursue it. Apart from the Bible, this is not a cultural virtue. There was a, actually a good book written some years ago. It's called The Book of Virtues. It was one of those really big books. And what they did, they looked at the canon of Western literature and sort of the fables and tales that we tell, and they pulled out those that had the greatest moral conviction so that it would create in people virtue. And you're supposed to read these stories to your children. I bought this book when my kids were little. And in the entire book of virtues, there's nothing about humility. Because you can read the entire Western canon of literature and not hear anything about humility. But if you pick up your Bible, it's a major theme. Because the word of God is countercultural, And as I like to say, we don't wanna live culture up, we wanna live kingdom down. And the value of the kingdom of God is humility. We'll get into this when we get into the warfare series coming up soon. But the first person to have pride was named Satan. And God cast him out of heaven because pride can't be in the presence of a humble God. Satan brought pride to this planet. And then when Jesus came down, he brought humility with him. When we choose pride, we're pulling hell up. When we choose humility, we're inviting heaven down. That's the principle. If you're humble, you'll be a better team player. You know what I've never seen? A war between the humble and the humble. I've never seen that. I've never consulted at a church and they're like, okay, it is World War III. Pastor has to wear a cup and a helmet in the pulpit. It's really gotten bad. Well, what's going on? The humble and the humble. It's a death match. I've never seen that. I've seen the pride and the pride go at it. I've seen the pride hurt the humble. I've never seen the humble and the humble be the source of all the problems. Amen? All right, that's what I think. Thanks for hanging in there. All right, next point. That's a humble team player. Somebody like, he's not humble, he yells at us. Um, yep, okay, a relationally smart team player. And when, when Lencioni talks about smart, he's not talking about IQ, but EQ. Because you can be smart and not wise. That's why I like to say, you can go to college and get knowledge, but there's not wisdom there. Okay, so there's a difference between your IQ, how smart you are, and your EQ, and that is how to do life in relationship with other people. So this is relationally smart. There's a pastor friend of mine, he says that these people play well in the sandbox. And have you ever had kids in a sandbox? Right, if you don't believe kids are sinners, just watch them play. <laughs> They're in the sandbox. There's always one kid who's like, this is for your eyes, right? There's another kid like, I'm gonna shove this in your mouth. It's gonna go down your diaper, right? I'm gonna pour this sand over your head. You're like, that kid doesn't play well in the sandbox. These are people that play well in the sandbox. They're empathetic, sympathetic, compassionate, considerate of others. I'll give you some verses. Proverbs 14, 16 and 17. A wise man fears the Lord and shuns evil, 
But a fool is hot-headed and reckless. A quick-tempered man does foolish things and a crafty man is hated. Look at all these potential teammates. Evil, foolish, hot-headed, reckless, quick-tempered, crafty or conniving or covert and secretive and duplicitous and political. These people get on teams, right? Sometimes they're the team leader. The question is, well, how do you prevent that? How do you mitigate against that? One thing, fear the Lord. If you fear the Lord, it will take you from foolish to wise. If you fear the Lord, it will take you from evil to godly. If you fear the Lord, it'll take you from quick-tempered to long-wicked. You will not be one that burns quickly and blows up explosively. Your relationship with God will straighten out your other relationships. And if your relationship with God is not healthy, you cannot have healthy relationships because that first relationship is the precedent prototype and also the provision for your other relationships. How about this one? Proverbs 19, 26, he who robs his father and drives out his mother is a son who brings shame and disgrace. What he's saying here is to get to know someone's character, look at how they treat their family. One of the mistakes I've made in ministry, I've been a senior pastor now for more than 20 years is I would hire quickly and fire slowly. And now I have reverse course. I will hire slowly and fire quickly because it takes time to get to know someone, their character. How do you get to know someone's character? In part, by examining how they treat their family. So for me, especially in pastoral leadership here, it's like, how's the marriage? Do they love their wife? Does the wife love them? Do they love their kids? Is this a healthy relational environment? It includes how you treat your parents, because if you will rob from your mother, you will rob from your employer. Moving to Arizona, all of you older saints, we love you, it is good to have you. I am not used to having older people and by that, I mean those who can vote in my church, I'm used to pastoring a lot of young people. And as I've come to Arizona and met so many older saints, I have learned something and that is that their children steal from them. This is one of the great tragedies of our culture. I was reading a report recently, and you think of especially elderly folks that are vulnerable to robo, robot calls and online schemes and contractors who knock on the door and take the down payment and never do the job. But they said that actually, the person most likely to steal from an elderly person is one of their own children. One of their own children. How do you treat your mom? How do you treat your dad? How do you treat your siblings? How do you treat your spouse? How do you treat your kids? If you don't do well in the family, you will not do well in the church family. You will struggle in business and your conflict will be relational. How about this one? Proverbs 28, 15, like a roaring lion or a charging bear is a wicked man ruling over a helpless people. Some people are domineering, overbearing. This is not a good teammate. You and I need to take our cues from God's kingdom, not the animal kingdom. That's what he's saying. Because some people say, well, we're, we're just animals that are evolved. No, we're not. We're image bearers who were created. 
We are not to follow the pattern of animals. We are to follow the precedent of the kingdom. Have you ever watched the animal kingdom? Any of you ever watched the, like the National Geographic shows and channel? It's scary stuff, right? I mean, animals, what do they do to each other? They eat each other. They eat each other. That's what he's talking about here. A lion or a bear shows up and just destroys and bites and devours and overpowers and is scary. And, and some of you have been on teams where someone is like that. You're like, they're the leader, but it, it's, like, it's, like, it's like a bear or a lion is just absolutely destroying the flock and hurting the team. Humility does not permit that or humility will mitigate against that. And that causes us then to be a relationally smart team player. Because I'll tell you what, for the lion or the bear, it's working for them, amen? They're like, this is great. I love bunnies and gazelles. I don't know what the problem is. Well, the bunnies and gazelles took a boat. It's not working for them, okay? How about the next series of slides? Uh, Proverbs 13, 11, 13, a gossip betrays a confidence, but a trustworthy man keeps a secret. What he's talking about here is, people who are a, an informational and relational bank vault, okay? Um, I've got a friend of mine, when I first met him, um, we started doing some ministry together and he said, uh, you could trust me, I'm a bank vault. Okay, my spiritual gift is jaded suspicion. So I, <laughs> I thought, I will confirm or deny that in 10 years. We will see, because in my opinion, in my experience, sometimes the people in the show, I'm like, you could trust me. Sleep with one eye open. Those are the least trustworthy people. <laughs> but this friend of mine has proven to be a bank vault. Information goes in, it doesn't come out. He's not a gossip, he's not a busybody. What a gossip and a busybody does is just like a greedy person, but a greedy person likes to amass money, a busybody or a gossip likes to amass information. That is their capital. Oh, let me tell you about them and then you tell me about them and I'm, I'm collecting data and sharing data. To be one who is a good team member, there will be things that you need to just hold and not communicate. There are two ways for information to move forth. One, it's pushed. If you're getting everyone's information and pushing it, especially if it's personal information. And I don't care if, I love you, but I don't care if you called a prayer request, it's still ungodly. Pray for Sally, she's cheating on her husband and he doesn't know and you know, pray for them. But pray for yourself, you gossip. You know, uh, <laughs> it's pushing information that's not yours to push. So I've got a little line I tell people and I teach the staff and that is, it's not my news to tell. You can push information and sometimes people can pull information. And that is, if you trust them, you can tell them. If you don't trust them, they don't need to know. So, you know, sometimes even it's good things in ministry. Oh, is so-and-so pregnant? I don't know, I don't sleep with them. It's none of my business. I'm, I'm not involved, go ask them. And if they wanna tell you, they'll tell you, but that's whose news to tell? That's their news to tell. That's not my news to tell. If you're a person that can hold information, you can be trusted. Now, some of you will say, oh, but what if I get bad information? Then you need to encourage that person to tell their news. Hey, you did this, 
you need to go tell them. I'm not gonna tell your news, but I'm going to encourage you to tell your news because they need to know. This is not concealing evil, but it's respecting order. That's a good teammate. How many of you have shared something with somebody and next thing you know, everybody knows. And, and, and okay, this is not helpful or good. How about uh, this one, Proverbs 28, 23, on a relationally smart team player. In the end, people appreciate honest criticism far more than flattery. <laughs> we tend to pick people who have flattery because they're kind of encouraging, right? You're beautiful, I've always thought so. You are witty, you are smart, you are charming, you're always right. You are discerning, that is all true. Thank you for observing that. I've always felt that and the rest of humanity has come to the wrong conclusion, glad you're here. Okay, now, if you only surround yourself with people who take your side, those are flatterers. If they only listen to one side of the story, and take offense for you, that's a flatterer. If, if, you, if you never hear them give you any advice that could improve your life, they're not really a friend, right? They're, they're not really a friend. Um, I still remember when I was a little boy, we went to the state fair and it, there was a carnival and they had, um, they had one of those carnival mirrors. You ever looked in those? What do they do? They distort your appearance. So I look in it and I'm like, I am so tall and skinny. I need the, this is an amazing mirror, you know? This must be the resurrection mirror. This is what I'll be like when it's all done. A flatterer is like a carnival mirror. They don't reflect the true you. They distort who you are. You need a friend. If you're gonna have good relationships, they're a mirror, not a carnival mirror. And they'll say, I love you, but I, we need to talk about this. Let's do it offline and private. I'm not gonna blow you up in front of everybody, but you know, this, this is something that needs some work or you need some help. That's a true friend. How about this one? Proverbs 15, 18, a hot-tempered man stirs up dissension, but a patient man calms a quarrel. How many of you in the workplace or in the home, there's a fight over the thermostat? You ever had that? Any of you married? You ever had this? One of, your, one of you is like, I like it 37 degrees in the house. That's what I like. Because uh, I like to pretend that I live in Alaska, even though I live in Arizona. And some of you are like, no, 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 no. 80's really good. 80's really good. There's always a debate over the thermostat. In the relationship, you need to beware of those who like the thermostat to be too hot. These are people that he calls hot-tempered. Meaning they're always what? emotionally hot, right? So, some of you guys, I love you, but you could work on this. Some of you, your emotional spectrum is asleep and angry. So you're, those are your options. You're like, I'm awake, so I'm angry. Like, well, let's, let's, let's turn the temperature down, cool down, calm down, meet with Jesus, pray, drink decaf, watch the Lifetime Network, right? Figure this out. You gotta, you gotta cool it down. Because if you already start at hot, then anything makes it volcanic. A good relational teammate, they know where to set the temperature and they're not always turning it up. How about this one? Proverbs 17, 14. 
Starting a quarrel is like breaching a dam, so drop the matter before a dispute breaks out, amen? We did staff Bible study this week, my wife Grace said, every Christian should read that verse before they log onto social media. <laughs> social media is an IQ test that no one is passing, okay? Social media is now a particularly efficient way uh, to start a quarrel. How do I know this? I've done this and I'm trying to repent, okay? But people, they'll fight over anything, right? They'll fight over literally anything. Jesus loves people. What about puppies? I, what? <laughs> well, what about cats? Cats are better than dogs. Here we go. We're not even talking about this, <laughs> right? You laugh because you do it. All right, so starting a quarrel. There are people, they start fights, they instigate. I once had a pastor on my team years ago and he said, well, I just always take the other side. I said, why is that? He said, well, I feel like somebody needs to be the devil's advocate. I was like, dude, I don't pay people to do the devil's work. We get that for free. Like that's not, that's not your role. <laughs> that's a volunteer position in this church, okay? <laughs> there are people that are always the contrarian, gonna pick a fight, gonna prove their point, gonna put you in their place, gonna get the last word. And what he says is it's like breaching a dam. What happens when a dam is breached? Everything flows downstream and floods everyone. When a fight breaks out, next thing you know, the dam breaks and all of a sudden your whole life, your family, your friends, your coworkers, Everybody knows it's a big mess. Everybody's involved. They're all taking sides and it's divisive and ungodly. And a healthy, smart, relational team player says, I'm gonna drop the matter before it breaks out. This relationship matters more than this issue. And the price I will pay for this war is a price I'm unwilling to pay. I'm not gonna take all my time and all my energy and get everyone involved over this. Drop it, walk away, move on. Humble, smart, hungry. These are people who are hardworking. They're self-motivated. These are people who show up to work. Crazy things like that. How many of you are an employer and you're having a hard time finding someone who really wants to work? Now, everyone wants a paycheck, but not everyone wants to work, okay? It's hard to find people that are self-driven, self-motivated, self-aware. They, they, they fuel their own fire toward their vocation or employment or job. Proverbs 16, 26, the laborer's appetite works for him. His hunger drives him on. Literally, there's a physical hunger that is compelling him to go to work. That's why the Bible says, if you don't work, you shouldn't eat. That hunger is a great motivation, right? So, Sometimes you're like, oh, I don't wanna to go to work. And you're like, I'm getting hungry. You gotta find a job. That is incentive. That's what that is. That's motivation. And what he says is that some people, they're, they have this innate sense of hunger and drive. I'll give you a, a thought that comes to mind. Many, many years ago, I knew a young guy, brand new Christian, came from a messed up background. He was married had little kids and he decided I need to get a job because he didn't work. 
and his wife is bearing this brunt of responsibility, trying to raise the kids and manage the home and provide the income. He met Jesus, he's like, I need to get a job. So if you're in your 20s and you're a guy, write this down, you need to get a job. Okay, write that down and then tell your mom that you're gonna do that and then do that, okay? So he came to me and he's like, I don't know what to do. I don't have any skills. I have smoked weed and played video games and they don't pay you for that. They don't. That's not a real income stream. You're like, nobody's gonna write you a check for that. So I said, well, what do you wanna do? He's like, I, I wanna have a trade. So he named a trade. I said, what do you know about that trade? He's like, nothing. I said, what are you gonna do? He said, I'm gonna go through the phone book. This is back when we had phone books and you know, we read them on the dinosaur and stuff and we're going to work. But um, he went through the phone book and he called down every single company that was in the field that he wanted to work for. And he said something like this, I would like to come to work at your company for a week or two for free. If you like my work ethic, then I'd like to be taken on. And if not, we don't even need paperwork. There's nothing you're going to need to fire me from. Literally, he made hundreds of calls. Finally, guy's like, I'll take you, took him. And ended up hiring him and then paying for his education so that he could be a foreman and a manager one day. That's a guy who's not a socialist, right? <laughs> okay. <laughs> that was mean. <laughs> How about this one? Um, lazy hands make a man poor, but diligent hands bring wealth. That's work ethic. These are people that show up, they work, they do their job, they care. These people are amazing. These people are hard to find. If you're in business or ministry, finding people that'll show up and work is a big deal. I got a friend who, he runs a, a job placement agency. I said, what's the biggest thing? He's like, getting them to show up. People be like, I need a job. Okay, I got you an interview. How'd it go? They're like, I didn't make it. Well, okay. <laughs> or they get the job and they don't show up at the job or they show up at the job and get their first paycheck and then they go to Vegas and they don't go back to work. This was my first experience. I'll tell you a little bit about my jobs. My first job, I lied about my age. I falsified my birth certificate. I was 15 years of age. I bought a 1956 Chevy and drove myself to be a clerk at a 7-Eleven where I checked people's ID that were older than me. That's what I did, okay? <laughs> I didn't know Jesus. I was this close to knowing Jesus, not good. And then my next job, I worked as a longshoreman. I, again, got out a typewriter, falsified my birth certificate with whiteout. You kids can Google it, it's an old thing. And then I falsified my birth certificate and I got a job as a, like a 16, 17 year old kid as a longshoreman. And here's what would happen every Friday. I don't know why they would pay the guys at noon. And then I was the only guy left on the job. As soon as they got paid, they were gone. And some would be gone for a week or two. Not hardworking, not consistent. And as a result, life comes to crisis. How about these ones? All hard work brings a profit, but mere talk leads only to poverty. See, wise people know when all is said and done, far more is said than done. How many of you, you don't even know why you're going to these meetings at work? Everybody sits around and says, this is a good idea. We should do this. This is awesome. Let's, and you're like, we're not gonna do any of this. I don't know why we're meeting. We're all pretending, right? This is not reality. We talk about things and we don't do them. 
Amen? Okay, just me. But you can, any of you watch that show Shark Tank? Every idea seems amazing. I watch Shark Tank and it's, they're like, every idea is a billion dollar idea. No, it's not. Only if there's hard work. Only if there's hard work does anything come to pass. Next series of slides. Proverbs 28, 19 through 22. He who works his land will have an abundance of food, but the one who chases fantasies will have his fill of poverty. If you ever watch the cartoons, you see somebody out in the desert, Arizona, and they want water so bad that they fall for a mirage. And the mirage is, oh, there's fresh water and life and shade. And so in the cartoon, they always venture toward the mirage. And as they get there, what do they realize? It doesn't exist. It was an illusion. Business is filled with mirages. Get rich quick, no. Guaranteed business venture, no such thing. That some people are looking for a shortcut. There is no shortcut, there's just long hard work. The Bible says little by little you make it grow. There's no such thing as an overnight success, right? The band that hits the charts has usually been on the road for a decade. It takes a little time to build a little momentum. And there's no shortcut. Proverbs 22, 29, close with this verse. Do you see a man skilled in his work? This is the quality of your work. And it doesn't matter what you're doing. You could be a chef, you could be an accountant, you could be a drywaller, you could be a mechanic. Whatever your thing is, if you're good at it, you work at it, you hone it, you become gifted at it, skilled in his work, he will serve before kings. He will not serve before obscure men. At some point, if you pour your heart into what you're doing and get good at it, somebody will promote you because they're looking for someone to do it well. And this is an ideal team player. Humble, relationally smart, and hungry, self-motivated, driven. And I wanna show you kind of how this works. So here's a little, little chart. The ideal team player is humble, smart, and hungry, all three. Let's be honest and say that every one of us has got at least one thing to work on, amen? How about the next slide? What, the point is that problems arise when one or more of these virtues are missing in an ideal team player. If you're only humble, you'll be the pawn. You'll be a little naive. You're gonna get taken advantage of. You're gonna be like, oh, I didn't read the contract, I lost. Or, oh, I, I, I didn't know that that's how you play the game to get to the top. I, you were a pawn, if you're only humble. These are people that are sweet, but naive. Uh, if you're only smart, you're the charmer. You're the, you're the life of the party. You're, you're fun, you're the class clown. Everybody loves you, but nobody respects you. This is the friend that if your car breaks down at 3 a.m., you will not call them. But if you wanna get in the car and go to Vegas at 3 a.m., that's who you're gonna call. That's the charmer. And if you are a person who is hungry and lacks the others, you're a bulldozer. You, just, you get a lot done, but there's so much collateral damage. There's so much weeping and bleeding around it just rolling over people in the name of results. What he says as well is, let's say you are humble and smart, you become the lovable slacker. 
We can't fire Tom. He's so sweet. Nobody else will hire him because he doesn't show up. He usually smells like whiskey, you know, but he's really awesome at karaoke and he's, he's a good guy. Lovable slacker. Lovable slacker. How about this one? The person who is humble and they're a bulldozer, but they don't have people smarts, they're the accidental mess maker. Like, well, I was trying to get it done and I didn't know that I killed everybody. <laughs> Rut row, you know, sorry. It's not malicious, it's, but it is painful. And here's one as well. If you're smart, people smart and hungry, but you lack humility, you become the skillful politician. You know how to get yourself on the board or into management or into leadership or into control because you feel that the organization is best served by you being as close to the top as possible. It's a lack of humility. There's a guy in the Bible named Diotrephes. It only mentions his name once and here's what it says. He always had to be first. He always had to be first. That's the skillful politician. Works people, gets stuff done, isn't humble enough to accept their God-given position in the organization. Um, I'm gonna invite the band up, we're gonna sing. This is the weirdest transition in the history of church ministry. So let me try and wrap this up. <laughs> okay, this week we launch our life groups and this is where we do life together and it's to help you find your team. Life groups are meeting all over the valley as well as here at the building. I would encourage you to stop by guest services and find your team. And when you meet with your life group this week, here are some questions. What teams are you on? Think of it, ministry team, work team, family team, sports team, right? You're in a band, whatever it might be, what teams are you on? Number two, in the past, what kind of team player were you? In the present, what kind of team player are you? In the future, what kind of team player do you want to be? What adjustments need to be made? And here's the good news I wanna share with you. This is where Christianity is different than every other religion. Every other religion has works or duties, things to do. Before God tells us to do anything, he does some things. And I like to say that when it comes to work, God works for you, he works in you, and he works through you. It's all God's work. So let me tell you this. First of all, to start your relationship with God, to turn from evil and foolishness to wisdom, all you need is Jesus. Jesus is humble. Jesus came down, lived without any sin. Jesus died on the cross in your place for your sin. And he did all the work for you to be forgiven, reconciled to God and to live a new life. Jesus does all the work. You just trust in him. That's God's work for you. Then God does a work in you. The Holy Spirit, the same teammate that Jesus had comes to live in the child of God. Now you are not alone. You're on God's team. You're on God's team. And God does a work in you to change your desires and to cause you to love his word and to seek to have your life be an overflow of his life. And that leads to God's work through you. Now you can love people that you used to yell at. You can go to work with a smile when you used to come with a smirk. It changes how you live your life because your work is not just your worship, it's also your witness that people are watching. 
and you want them to see God's work for you, in you, and through you so that they would be encouraged to consider Christ. I close with this. We're gonna take communion, remembering the work of Jesus, broken body, shed blood. It's for all believers, but I just wanna say this. This church family is a good team. I am encouraged by the attitudes, the work ethic, the relationships, and the teachability. I, am, I don't know if you know this, I'm not a flatterer, right? I'm a preacher. This is a good team and we're honored to have you. And as your pastor, I just wanted to say thank you. Father God, as we come now to worship the Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus, thank you that you are humble and you were smart. You know who to trust, who not to trust, who to let close and who to keep far. And Lord Jesus, you were hungry. You were hungry to glorify the Father. You were hungry to save sinners. So Jesus, we invite the Holy Spirit. We wanna be on your team. We wanna live by your power. We wanna be doing what you are already beginning and doing in and through us. And so Holy Spirit, as we come to worship, I just pray that you would have a particular word or an encouragement or an empowerment for each of these people. And God, I thank you that you never leave us nor forsake us, that life is not a solo sport, it's a team sport with God. And so Jesus, we thank you for that. Father, we're rejoicing in that. And Holy Spirit, we're trusting that in Jesus' good name, amen.